So when I was growing up, I knew I was very different from my family. This podcast is building to a mixed media performance installation about women's journeys and the real, imagined concepts of the present Pangea. It's produced by Lucille International Theatre Company based in Houston, Texas. The photography in the final exhibition will be featured by Rashad Hawk. The sound design and music is composed by Garrett Gonzalez. And a special thank you to Carol Keating, Debbie Bai, and all of our Kickstarter backers and everyone that has given their support to this project. I'm Melissa Flower. I'm Lisa Villegas. This is Pangea. I came to the States in 91, the fall of 91, to college uh, in upstate New York. This is Taiba. Taiba is a writer and artist from Pakistan and Dubai who moved to the U.S. at age 18. Um, Rochester, freezing cold, uh, lots of snow, and I came from Dubai, which was hot Arabian desert. So I loved it. It was, you know, everything I dreamed of as far as a change in weather. You know, the exact opposite of where I'd been. And I was literally, well, I wasn't exactly halfway across the world, but pretty much. Um, So when I was growing up, I knew I was very different from my family. Um, And they, uh, they're a very traditional Pakistani family. They moved to Dubai from Pakistan when I was two for economic reasons. Um, So my dad had his business, but the Pakistani community in in Dubai tended to stay very, uh, you know, just within each other, within the community. But the schools that we went to had kids from every country Mm. in the world because Dubai has, you know, the UAE has an 80% immigrant population, Mm -hmm. only 20% are locals. So they were from all over the world in our schools. Mm -hmm. And so, my universe was very different from my parents' universe, and I knew very early on that um, I needed to be my own person. Um, and I spent most of my time immersed in books, which my parents had a very practical life and did not spend their time in books. So I just was looking for a different world, and uh, this was going to be it. Uh, I was also looking for, I knew that I needed my own voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I couldn't live the lives my cousins lived after they graduated from high school. They went mm-hmm. to career colleges because their parents were very ambitious for them, but all for the purposes of being eligible to be married. And uh, then they became somebody's wives, and I was yeah. not ready to do that. I mean, I did eventually do that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. I didn't know whether or not to express this, but I did not miss home at all one little bit. <laughs> I came over and I was happy in my new universe. Um, I loved the freedom of thought, freedom of expression, being able to be my own person and not being perceived. I think the most freeing thing for me was that I wasn't seen as a girl. I loved that in college. It's like I was just a person, whereas in Dubai, it's like woman, woman, woman. You know, I'm a woman from every perspective and I wasn't that anymore. I was just a person. Well, my, and my brothers were allowed to do a lot more than I was. Uh, but even just walking on the street in Dubai, you people, men stare at women openly. It's mm-hmm. their prerogative. And um, 
uh, I just wanted to shoot them between the eyes every time I, that happened. And I didn't know I could do that until when I started going back home after staying here and I would just stare them back. Mm. And they didn't know what to do with themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and I love over, over here that nobody you know, feels like they can impose themselves on you. People might, but you can tell them off for it, yeah. <laughs> you know. And then there's definitely political differences, you know, in that just being able to have one's own political voice and be able to freely express oneself within that. Um, I think that's huge. Uh, what I found hilarious, though, living in Texas is that the political rhetoric is exactly the same as in Pakistan. <laughs> You know, not in the more liberal parts of the country, but over here, the way the politicians talk with their, I call it the Christian Sharia. It's, it's, it's exactly the same. The, those conversations, the way the politicians in Pakistan just profess what people need to do and how women mm -hmm. should live and be and healthcare and everything else. The conversation is no different in Texas versus Pakistan. <laughs> I'm like, oh, look, we're back. You know, you hear the Texas legislature speak and, you know, argue over the laws. And it's like, hey, I thought I left this behind, Mr. Entitled Person with all your patriarchal power, you know. No, I knew I could never go back for any extended period of time. So it was only holidays. I visited my parents. I kept a hold of my passport. <laughs> I made sure my visa val was always valid. Mm -hmm. Whatever I needed to do for that, whether it was work study options after college or employment options, um, because I couldn't let anybody else control what happened with my life. And I knew that if I stayed there for any extended period of time, I would not be able to get back. Um, and of course, as soon as I was ready to graduate, people were ready to, you know, the proposal started. Pouring in, and my brothers had stories. They're like these people came, and they're connected to us from our village, and they wanted to look at your photo album from when you were little, and oh. it was disgusting. So anyway, um, I wasn't gonna be part of any of that. Yeah. Plus, I had I had somebody I was interested in. <laughs> no, I was not this, and I didn't expect this. But I was at the airport, and I immigration and I looked back once and waved at my parents and I was gone. My parents couldn't accompany me here for financial reasons. Uh, my dad was supposed to join me on the flight but he couldn't so he sent me to Boston where we had a cousin um, mm -hmm. and they received me and then got me to Rochester but no I was not. I was gone. <laughs> so now I've definitely spent more of my life here than there and mm -hmm. uh, but very quickly I had I knew this was my place. There was actually a very intellectually stimulating, I think because I started classes right away. Mm -hmm. And just, I think one of the few first things that shocked me is a professor asking you to refer to him by his first name. Mm. And I was like, okay. <laughs> because you know, that generational mm -hmm. difference. So that was something that caught Surprising. me off guard, but I just, I loved it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and then being able to question my professors you know, and that was brilliant. And being able to take classes that had nothing to do with anything supposedly practical. I could not ever imagine that, you know? It was always, you know, your classic, our parents raising us and, you know, you're, you're gonna study engineering or whatever mm -hmm. it may be, you know, make a life for yourself. And um, so that was wonderful. Mm -hmm. What was really interesting to me, which I didn't expect is that the 
community of Pakistani students at the university shunned me uh, because I had too many white friends and too many Indian friends. Uh. And they actually got together and decided that I was not welcome in the Association of Pakistani Students. What? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating. I was like, fuck you. <laughs> I'm, I'm a person of the world. This is why I'm here. You know, it's, it's, an, it's, I've since, it took me a while to figure that out, but what I've understood since then is the, the difference was I grew up in Dubai. And most of them grew up in Pakistan. Uh, and the rhetoric they grew up with in Pakistan is very different in that they're explicitly taught, you know, the West is out to screw you, Indian people are your enemy. And this entire generation, my generation of people were born in a free Pakistan, mm -hmm. raised by parents who had fought for independence. So these parents were very nationalistic yeah. and militant about mm -hmm. their identity, which involved excluding Indians, it involved excluding Jewish people, you know, America was bad, but they were going to send their kids to college. Mm -hmm. um, I think what was also interesting was that my I was one of the very few Pakistani girls here because most of them were boys. Mm. My parents faced a huge backlash for letting me come to college mm. because you know, I was a Muslim girl, and you don't just let your girl off into the big white world because there are men out there, you know, <laughs> and, and other monsters. Um, yeah. But my dad, very interestingly, was a super conservative Muslim, mm -hmm. and it took me... Once I realized this, I was just amazed, but it was his faith in Islam that had him send me off because... Islam says education comes above everything else and education, educate your children, your daughters and your sons. Even, you know, in the Quran or wherever it is, I think maybe it's the same with Prophet Muhammad, it says, even if you have to go to China, which was the furthest place you could supposedly go. <laughs> uh, yeah, in that time. And so my dad took that very seriously and, you know, he said, he also really wanted me to be independent and not be dependent on the men in my life, hmm. which was really awesome. Awesome. Um, he did expect me to be much more conservative and I had mm -hmm. to sort of lead a double life because I wasn't. I was an extreme liberal from even when I was 10, I think. I knew, I knew at that point that I didn't, like, I broke away from my religion, but I couldn't explain that to my parents because that wasn't even a concept to them. It, I think it had to do with being told how to be as a girl um, and, um, and that Technically, girls were not the property of men, but you know, needed to be protected by them, by your father and then by your husband. And I just, that didn't make any sense to me. I, if there was a God, why would, it just made no sense that God would create random, you know, males and females and decide that the males were <laughs> the Lords, you know? <laughs> and so that, that kind of broke the spell for me. And, oh, oh and it ha I think it had a lot to do with we had a huge question around wearing the hijab at home where my mm -hmm. dad wanted me to. Mm -hmm. And I was like, why? <laughs> Can you explain to me why? And he's like, well, it's, you know, it's just a symbol of being a Muslim woman. Like, well, if I feel it in my heart, then why do I need to show it to other people? Why do I need to wear the symbol? Plus it's uncomfortable, mm -hmm. you know, and why don't men have to wear it? Just a very basic question. Mm -hmm. Like why women and not men? Mm -hmm. 
And I understood the concept around modesty, but I felt like it should apply to men and women equally, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I didn't believe the hijab was any more modest than no hijab. You know, I thought it was the men's problem if they thought hair was attractive. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, why should I accommodate your lust? You know, it's yeah. stupid. So none of that made sense to me as far as a god. I also thought, why does God bother with you know as a young child you and if you start to realize it's like we're just creatures like cats and dogs and trees why does god care so much what human beings do mm-hmm. and so suddenly god didn't make god in that sense didn't make any more sense to me so mm-hmm. and um and i struggle with that now for my kids because i think mm-hmm. maybe that's just a person thing Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I, I I read a lot about when when we had kids. It's like, okay, should you raise them in religion? And again, that didn't make any sense to me because I'm like, well, I don't believe it. It's just a, it's just stories people have made up. Mm-hmm. Um, but then in that research, it feels like there's this question of self fulfillment, like a purpose. And for me, I didn't miss that purpose. The argument was, you know, where did, where would a person find purpose if they don't oh, find it in religion? Yeah. And I'm like, I don't have a purpose. I am like a cat or a dog, <laughs> you know? It's like, what purpose does a cat have? Why should I be indifferent? So I don't, I think the only obligation I feel like a sentient human being is to make the world a better place. I just feel like there's, or at least not harm it. But I'm also not content to just sit back and live a life. I have always felt the drive to do something better for humanity because what other purpose do we have, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So I feel like in shedding religion, my purpose in improving humanity has become stronger. I don't think it would have been so strong otherwise because I would have been like, oh, I'm achieving my purpose because I'm being a good human being and God approves of me and I'm going to go to heaven. And that would have maybe perhaps satisfied me, you know? Mm-hmm. And now I don't have any other way to satisfy myself other than trying to make a difference which I feel like I can do through art uh-huh. and for the kids too that's so in deciding in concluding that I couldn't honestly raise them in religion because I don't believe in a creator god who is a puppet master you know so in any of that kind of mm-hmm. religion uh, you know they're free to choose anything that that they, they connect yeah. with that yeah. speaks to them but uh, the only rule per se, spirit or moral rule we have in this house is don't hurt anybody and, um, you know, create good karma. That's all. Like if you're doing the opposite of that, you're being bad. When Griffin was very young, really death brought that question around first of spirituality. Um, you know, their granddad, Rashid's father, passed away when Athena was two and Griffin was six. And really, with Griffin, the conversation was, we all become part of the earth, and then we regenerate and grow out as plants, and the animals feed on us, and it's a circle of life, and Griffin was really satisfied with that. He's like, oh yeah, it's the circle of life, and we're organic matter. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't bother him at all, and then, so he was comfortable with, you know, and he, so he's basically about as atheistic per se as me, atheist, Mm -hmm. but but neither of us is atheist to the point of like there's no you know that that there isn't another consciousness somewhere because I can never say that 
mm-hmm. you know, and I, so I would say maybe I'm more agnostic. And Griffin's the same place. Athena has a huge need for spirituality in her mm-hmm. life and tradition. She is actually a natural born conservative. <laughs> uh, you know, and that's it's really interesting, like learning what a new, true sort of conservative nature is versus a liberal nature, and, and you need both, um, you know, leaving aside all practical stuff. Mm. So she likes a steady state. She likes, she feels that tradition really helps give you comfort and, and helps you find a path. Um, so she needs that direction and guidance and, you know, she likes the sense of a bigger purpose. Um, so she is, I think, still searching. <laughs> I think the only thing that I, I need from her to understand is that your purpose shouldn't be to please a god. Mm-hmm. And she is in that place. You know, you're, you, you do the right thing because you're doing the right thing. So, you know. She'll find her spirituality somewhere. <laughs> um, if she were with my parents, she would definitely be quite a Muslim. When we visited Dubai, she was all like, "This is so cool." She was, t- what she was like, no six, and she'd put on a headscarf and a. She's wearing the long Arab dress, and she's walking around in the mall like she loved it because she wanted to be with the little Arab girls, and I was like. <laughs> She was doing it because it was beautiful and it fit in and she understood the modesty thing and she wanted to be modest among the modest girls. So I, you know, I have cousins, my family's pretty split in whether or not, nobody really forces anybody and several of my cousins have gone in and out of the hijab several times Mm -hmm. um, and my aunts and, you know, my mom and... Um, you know, some there are phases in your life. Sometimes it makes them feel like they're closer to God, just as a symbol. Um, sometimes they find comfort. Like to me, it's the equivalent of as I've grown older, I find it more comfortable to be in loser clothing. It's just you know, I'm not, I'm not worried. There's never eyes. There's never you know, and I think that's the feeling that the hijab gives them is, it lets them be themselves because uh-huh. can, the men are ignoring them, you know, and and it's, so it's more empowering from that perspective because they've said to the world, you know, don't mess with me. Yeah, don't look mm-hmm. at me. I'm not yours. I'm not yours. I'm my mm-hmm. own. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, definitely. And then some women just grow up in it and it doesn't bother them at all. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh. I think when you asked about what surprised me about here, there was a social surprise, which is the only television I, the only, my only exposure to the, to America was via TV. Your classic um, 1980s TV shows, uh, Night Raiders, <laughs> and yeah, oh you know, all your, you know, your 8 p.m. like <laughs> shows that, um, you know, MacGyver yeah. or whatever. But I, so, yeah. <laughs> so what I never saw was poverty in America ever. Mm-hmm. And so when I came here, I was really surprised. Dubai has actually very low incidence of poverty. You don't see it on the streets at all. Uh, even like, everybody who's a national is subsidized by the government because the sheikhs really own the land. They are literally the rulers of the land. The people don't own it, and so wow. they give them they give them a subsidy for sending their kids to school or whatever if they're poor. Otherwise, they just have they have a lot of you know they're never really poor if they're locals. And immigrants only come in because they have jobs, even mm-hmm. though they live in some bad conditions, but still, you know. So just seeing people, poor people out on the street shocked me. I didn't imagine that. My America was Manhattan. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and not the farms, you know. And now in Pakistan, I'd seen a lot of poverty, and then I saw a little bit of a reflection of that in the U.S., and I was shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the other thing that surprised me about the U.S. was um, 
a lot of the culture that came with Pakistan and even Dubai was very, the homes, for example, had high walls. You never had a front door open onto a street. And it was really shocking to me in Rochester, New York, to see front doors of little, you know, little bungalows open onto this main road. It's like, can I just open your front door and walk into your living room? That's weird. So the lack of privateness uh, in American life, I think that did take me by surprise. The lack of privacy. You know, their, all their lives were out in the open, much more than back home. After I came here, it really was, which I managed to navigate, uh, it, was, it was very interesting to see that hard work just got you places. And I grew up in a culture of hard work, you know, my, my father's father was the head of our village in, in Pakistan, outside Lahore, and his entire generation were farmers, and all my, you know, all his brothers, most of his nephews and nieces, uh, even my cousins are coming out to my generation, most people were farming in Pakistan. And then my father's older brother left the village. And so he helped his father farm, but he left the village and studied engineering. And um, he moved to Lahore in Pakistan mm -hmm. and ended up doing all the major structural engineering projects for the Pakistani government. So he built many of the bridges of his time, like major roads. Mm -hmm. so that leap from like a farmer in the village to that. And he brought his siblings, particularly my dad, over and made sure that he was educated. So my dad ended up in Dubai with a business. And then here I was, you know, the job that I held was in technology consulting and I was helping banks like Citibank and all these major banks implement cutting-edge web technology in the late 90s, early 2000s when the internet was, you know, the, when banks were still building websites. <laughs> and I think about that, I'm like, wow, from my granddad to me, how amazing are these leaps? And the one difference is education. That was the only difference, in fact. Um, and that shocks me. I think what brought that realization home very strongly was I saw this picture recently after my dad passed away, our ancestral family home came down the line to our me and my brothers. My brother took a picture of my grandfather's house that we spent many summers in playing, but nobody lives in it anymore and it was falling apart. And I realized I saw this one room in that picture, um, you know, it's a mud home, and it's beautiful, but you know, it's, it can fall apart easily which was, I realized, a bridal chamber. And that's where I realized that my uncle got married and brought his bride, my dad got married and brought his bride, my dad's younger brother got married and brought his bride, and I'm like, oh my god, there's probably like 30 of us who were conceived in that room, <laughs> our cousins. <laughs> you know, seeing that image and realizing that these 30 kids who I can count on my fingers who were probably conceived in that room, where are we in the world now? And they are all over Europe, they're in the US, they're everywhere, and they're all conceived in that little room in that village home in Pakistan. Take this obligation freely. I'm a US citizen now because, you know, Without any mental possibly could be and was going to because I wanted to vote. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but I still have my, you know, my Pakistani, because Pakistan allows a dual mm -hmm. thing, citizenship, oh, okay. so I didn't have to renounce my Pakistani citizenship. The U.S. doesn't care, there's no law for and against, or against it, so mm -hmm. 
Um, I've just maintained it because it's easier. Mm -hmm. I can walk in the country whenever I want. So help me God. So uh, all I knew was I had to get to university in the U.S. and so okay. I got some applications. Rashid actually was already here for a year or so. Okay. He sent me a lot of the college applications, which was awesome. But no, I, I mean, all I knew was you had to apply for a student visa to the U.S. Um, if you got accepted. So um, I did, I got into the University of Rochester and I just, you know, went to the U.S. consulate and made it happen. Um, and made the whole college application process was all on my own. I just, nobody reviewed anything. Nobody knew anything. I just, like... <laughs> figured it out, you know, and I think my brothers may have had a little bit of an advantage because of me, but nobody around me was applying to college yeah. at all into the U.S., uh, you know, these guys did, but I wasn't talking to them, you know, they were boys, <laughs> so especially no girls were applying, um, and so uh, when I got my acceptance letter, it was just, I they told me I needed an F1 visa, I'm like, okay, I'll go figure this out, so... Um, I went and, you know, I got approved, that was easy enough, and then just flew in. I was, one of my, I've written an essay about this, but it took me a long, long time to understand what happened here, but one of my favorite little stories now is when I landed at Logan Airport in Boston before I got to immigration, I actually got really nauseous and I went and threw up. And I was very surprised because I don't get airsick. And... It took me about 20 years to realize what had happened right then. I was terrified I wouldn't be let in. As I again, I so badly wanted, and I had no reason to be rejected by immigration, but that's why I was like, and I was on my own, I'm like, just, I knew if I just got past immigration, Logan Airport, I would never have to go back in my life. Like, this was it, just let me through and then I can make it happen. <laughs> and they were like, oh, blah, blah. okay, whatever, stomps down. And once I was on the other side, I'm like, this is it, this is the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and then um, after, so through college and then grad school again, you're just going to renew your um, student visa. But what happens is once your student visa is over, you need to, you have to leave the country unless you get something called practical training. Get a year of being able to work post your student visa. Um, and so that's what I worked on and what that gives your company, so whoever hires you, that gives them the space to hire you. It's almost like an internship visa in a way mm -hmm. um, and while they apply for your work visa. So I made sure I had my optional practical training visa mm -hmm. in order. Um, so and then when I joined Sabian, you know, this is the advantage of sort of having all those degrees and education and everything stamped and signed is <laughs> You know, I, I was with a great consulting company that had lawyers that just did the process and within the year I had my, you know, there was some lapse because of the number of visas being applied for, so I'd leave the country for a month, but the lawyers were on it and I got my employment, employment authorization. And then that's really all you need to keep renewed as long as you're working and paying your taxes. Mm -hmm. And so you stay on top of that and the company kept renewing it. Um, and then if you have been... On your employment authorization, you can apply for your green card mm -hmm. um, after a few years, um, and there's some sort of, I don't know, some sort of in-between status that they give you. Uh, but yeah, you know, at, along that path, over five or six years, the green card finally came through, mm -hmm. and then that was it. Like once you have a green card, you're a permanent resident. So mm -hmm. again, that went through the company's lawyers, and so I did feel a little bit 
trapped per se. I had to stay with this company, but uh, and I couldn't explore other career options easily because I loved them, but I just didn't like being trapped. I've never liked being trapped. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it's like, but I want the choice to leave. Yeah. Like Even yeah. though I love you, let me go. But uh, you know, you start, but you stick with it if you have to, and and I definitely did, and I'm grateful for all the awesome opportunities I had there. And, and including getting my green card through the company because then the lawyers keep taking care of it. Mm-hmm. Just kind of have to buckle down and make it happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's... And after the green card, then you, you know, you just don't, you know, commit any murders. <laughs> and you can be a citizen in five years. And so we, st- yeah, we stayed on top of that. And Houston was awesome for that because in some other states it takes forever. But, you know, right, you know, three months before your five years are up, we sent in our applications for citizenship they got approved the interview process was really simple thumbprints within three months i think it basically barely took us three months we were taking our oaths and that was the next time i was like really moved i could not i loved that day it was in this huge stadium up on aldine whatever right like you know there were like two thousand people taking their oath that day so it was (laughs) But I loved it. It was, you know, they, they sang the Star Spangled Banner and they, you know, you stood up and you took your oath and, you know, I, for me, it was a huge moment. The day I got my citizenship, my writing changed. And, and I was writing much more fiercely, much more openly and saying everything I wanted to say in the voice I wanted to say it. Because until that moment, I could be persecuted for my writing. You know, even though I had a green card, if I ended up in Pakistan, I was not a Pakistani citizen. I wasn't an American citizen, so I had no protection. And I think that is the one protection I hold the most dear is freedom of speech. It is just so important to me that freedom of speech is so important to me. I exercise it a lot, even just as a resident and, you know, a a person who lives here, which I love. But now I get mad. Like, I have parents of my, you know, my kids' friends. Some of them are atheists and they hold it quiet and secret and they're really afraid to say, they're like, well, I don't know if, you know, the other parents are going to kind of find that weird or treat my kids differently. I'm like, excuse me, (laughs) freedom of speech. (laughs) And whatever, you know, I'm like, stop being, stop being afraid. You're in the one country in the world where your government actually protects you, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And how can you be afraid? And then you get to vote. I hadn't actually been able to vote my whole life until the day I became a US citizen because I was a non-resident Pakistani. Mm -hmm. Non-resident Pakistanis don't get to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was not, I was not as, you know, I didn't have any voting status in Dubai, in UAE. And then in all the years in the US, following the legal path was long. It was, and even to 2012, following, just staying exactly on the legal path mm-hmm. uh, took that long. Yeah, that's like 21 years, but it felt really good. I don't think I can easily go back anymore. Just. There's so much harassment of writers and artists, and I don't know what they're hearing about what I do or write over here that I'm like, okay, I don't think I really want to risk that anymore. <laughs> they have lists, and they, they know people, and who knows? Like you may, one person can get mad at you and then just Tell spread them. the word. Yeah. 
yeah and you just don't know you just don't know so the one reason i maintained my passport is if i wanted mm-hmm. to go back for my mom for whatever reason mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um in fact i don't even have a pakistani passport you don't need a passport you just need a national id card mm. and you know i travel on my us passport which mm-hmm. is a plus and a minus <laughs> it's better than traveling on a pakistani passport that was horrible i have had people move away from me several steps after noticing that my passport was pakistani my brothers actually were both in the us they studied here and they were working here but they left after 9/11 because of the level of harassment they experienced wow. and that's really? why they're not here anymore because mm-hmm. it was i mean their their dignity was really offended every time they came back into the country after traveling or visiting my parents they'd be stuck at the airport for 3 hours being interrogated for no reason whatsoever they had they they were they've always maintained a legal status they were legal immigrants they worked they had great jobs they had places here they had you know they were just regular people but they got harassed all the time by the authorities and um it just hurt them and they were done with it they're like both of them decided they would rather live in the crazy place that is pakistan and not be looked down upon mm. or mistreated than sort of have the luxuries of living here and be treated that way so they went away it was easier for me they don't harass women plus nobody ever knows where i'm from <laughs> like half the time people speak to me in spanish from Rochester I went on to grad school in Oregon um and I was studying math and that cracked me up too which is like you know when you're in grad school and studying math it's so abstract mm-hmm. and it's like I could never even begin a conversation about what I am studying with my grandfather mm. it means nothing mm-hmm. it's like you can't even begin to translate it you know yeah. <laughs> so that was fascinating too that sort of leap in intellectual mm-hmm. you know like what you think about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh and you know that reminds me when you talk of differences the other thing the other major difference not major but like a difference that i've thought about a lot in my life that somehow i want to illustrate is where societies are in their level of development and what people worry about and i always loved being here because the discourse here was at a level that excited me it was intellectual it was like you know how do we better ourselves intellectually and spiritually and you know this conversation about equality or whatever it may be you know all these sort mm-hmm. of conversations and they don't exist in Pakistan mm-hmm. uh people don't talk about these questions like art is not something that is supported or considered important mm-hmm. although there are artists who of course are passionate about their art but as a society there is no conversation about art and it's because people over there are still hungry and worried about feeding themselves and i just you know that was an emancipation for me socially too where i used to be judgmental about oh that place is so backward like i hate it i i can't have a decent conversation there it's so boring or whatever you know like i can't talk to my cousins but then you realize it's just what are people fending for you know you can only get to a conversation about the value of art after you, your stomach is full god knows me बोल बुलाब आजाद है तेरे बोल जुबान अब तक तेरी है 
तेरा सुखमा जिसम है तेरा इज देयर एन ऑब्जेक्ट
So culturally, Pakistani and Bengali weddings are, have the same rituals and mm. same celebrations. So that it kind of flowed very nicely. What it involves is four events almost, um, where one is the pre-wedding sort of party where you get your turmeric and henna applied, <laughs> and then you have the wedding, um, and then you have. The wedding is hosted by the girl's family, and then there is a post-wedding groom's reception hosted by the groom's family. So, and then pre-wedding there could be a few events. So that's what we had a couple of those. Uh, one hosted by my family, one hosted by Rashid's in Dubai, and then we had a wedding in Dubai where, since Rashid's parents had lived in Dubai while we were growing up, they had a lot of you know the whole Bengali community came, the whole Pakistani community came. It was a huge wedding, mm-hmm. and I was one of the first it was one of the first weddings in our community um, you know because everyone else kids were younger so mm. everyone was so excited because there was a bride you know <laughs> um, so it was a huge deal and then we went to Dhaka uh, in Bangladesh and had the groom's reception there uh, where Rashid's entire family got invited and that was also interesting you know I, I don't know all the politics because his dad handled this but I being from Pakistan was the oppressive enemy. So Pakistani army murdered and tortured and raped and pillaged. And they're like, you brought in the enemy. (laughs) I had a hard time at the airport. I got heckled and harassed a little bit. And they almost didn't let me leave and then I had to beg and claim my mother was sick and whatever. It was interesting. But that was only once. That was only once. I ruined it for my brothers by marrying Rashid because they were so traumatized by my parents' wrath that they told themselves they could only marry Pakistani Muslim women, which they both did. They actually ditched their girlfriends who were not Pakistani Muslims. It was, and I had to fight with them. I'm like, why are you doing this? They're like, you have no idea. So it's not, uh, you know, it's, we're all family now. It's not mm-hmm. an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question still remains from a social perspective with my extended family. I mean, not even anymore. I think the bigger question, in fact, was that it wasn't fully arranged when people realized that we went to college together. That was like the biggest scandal. I mean, I have nieces, like my cousin's kids, who now are going through the same kind of marriage fixing and all of that. Mm-hmm. And then I did try to convince me not to go to grad school because uh, no boy would marry me because Pakistani men need their wife to be to have a degree less than them mm-hmm. academically, mm-hmm. or at least not more. So after grad school, I'll just talk about my career path. Mm-hmm. Grad school, um, which I was in math, which was in math. Okay. I was in Oregon. I decided not to get my PhD actually because it just looked like a very lonely path in the academic world, and mm-hmm. um, I wanted to be out in the big wide world. Um, mm-hmm. And so this wonderful company came recruiting to campus, technology consulting company, and I interviewed and I got accepted, and that's how I landed my first job in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So in '97 onwards, I was in technology consulting pretty much on and off, except for like the kids being born. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that. Um, it was. It was fine, and I made a wonderful career out of it, but um, mm-hmm. I, my, I never gave in to my creative side, so I'd always been studying literature, and I'm a writer, and I had been writing on the side, and at some point I found myself working all day and then writing all night, mm-hmm. and I decided that life's too short, mm-hmm. and I have to be supremely grateful that I could make the choice to not work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you actually got stuck with working. <laughs> yeah, and I, I decided, I tried to write for a while and then the, this is just really frustrating, but you cannot make a living as a writer, as a creative writer in this country. You just can't, you know, unless you hit it big. And it was very interesting navigating the world of uh, literary publishing. One, I hit all the classic roadblocks of being a person of color. Like the stuff I wrote, which a lot of it was magic realist or just coming from this different voice. And I had no confidence in myself because I didn't have an MFA, but I it kind of, when you want to write, you want to write. And I, and I was reading this other stuff, so I knew my writing wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but being told that I love your story, but I can't publish it was really weird. Like I got so much positive, so many positive personal responses from journals and I knew that I was writing stories that were similar to what they published but my context wasn't the same. That was the only difference because I was writing out of a different voice. Um, and those same journals were coming back and saying, the Paris Review came back and said, we love your story but we can publish it. And I'm like, shh. Right. Well, and right. so that's changing now where people are finally, all this conversation around writing is mm -hmm. coming out to, we need all our voices. Right. Well, and I, I found another fascinating potential explanation, which is mm -hmm. uh, when I realize this now, being in theater. So when you read a story that is not of your culture, mm -hmm. as an editor, you fear entering, treading those waters because you are no judge of... Right. You know, especially since mm -hmm. the stuff I write can be very challenging. So if I'm mm -hmm. writing something that's very harsh like I have a story that involves the rape of a young girl by a Muslim priest right mm -hmm. how can a you know a person like a white male Christian person from here necessarily endorse that you know so I think there was a lot that and I find this editors and sort of the gatekeepers mm -hmm. of a lot of this have their own challenge. So anyway, so, so I, I discovered, I, I harbored a whole bunch of bitterness initially, but I also discovered that this is a challenge. With all of that and hitting that wall, I, you know, I wanted to go back into something that was more career oriented and I didn't want to be back into technology consulting because by this point I knew that I wanted to make a, you know, a difference. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like arts, because I've been a project manager in the technology world, that arts administration was even though I don't earn anything from the theater yet. <laughs> but I feel like the way I can help the world be a better place is by boldly asking questions through art. And I think art is the best medium for that. I enjoy art. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I want my kids to always ask questions um, and not be afraid of that. Yeah, Art's the one thing that always asks questions. Yeah. So the antenna of society, that's right, artists. Ezra Pound, right? <laughs> yeah. Cool. Where are we so, at time? Yeah. yeah. That's actually like, we can just end on an Ezra Pound quote. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Join us next week as we meet Ify, a doctor and medical researcher from Nigeria.